I'm very excited to welcome our special guest for today's episode of A Gamer's Story, Jeffrey Gold. Jeffrey is a game writer and narrative designer based in Los Angeles, California. Past writing clients include Capcom, Ubisoft, Square Enix, and other indie studios around the world. He loves figuring out how to tell interactive stories in different mediums, such as mobile games you might have heard of, Sandship, or Murder in the Alps. Console titles such as Fallen Legion Revenant and tabletop RPGs, Helm Grey Castle, and Wet Hot American Summer Fantasy Camp, to name a few. Welcome to A Gamer's Story. I'm Noah Geekus, avid fan of gaming and gamers alike. Each episode will feature in-depth conversations with gamers from all areas of gaming. Have you ever wondered about the actual gamers themselves? Their motivations? Their home lives? Their quirks? Just how much time they actually spend gaming, and their thoughts on the future of gaming itself? Join me as I ask them just these questions. Are you ready? Jeffrey, thank you for being on my show. Although my podcast is all about gaming, I want to talk about all aspects of your career and how they intersect. Are you ready? I am very ready. I'm going to press start to enter (laughs) Gamer's Story and start the interview. Oh my gosh, it's great. Okay, so for everyone out there that doesn't know, you are a narrative designer, correct? That is correct. So how many times do you get asked, like, what is a narrative designer? Or, or like, what is a narrative designer just generally? Just give us a general description. Absolutely. First of all, uh, I get asked all the time. I used to get asked a lot more. So what I started doing was just doing a quick explanation of what it is as soon as I say the title. So that way, we, I don't have to be asked what it is. So uh, so what is a narrative designer? A narrative designer is very, a very broad and simple term, someone who is responsible for the story and the narrative content of a video game. It overlaps in some ways with another job called a game writer. So here, this is, there was a great interview, or this was a great um, article written by a narrative designer at Ubisoft who explained it this way. I'm paraphrasing, but it's something like a game writer says, uh, a narrative designer knows, okay, the waiter is going to, there's going to be a waiter who's going to come up to your table and it's it's the player's table and is going to say, what? And then the game writer says, you know, that's good evening. You know, the game writer, the game writer writes the dialogue, writes what the writes the content and the narrative designer sort of determines like the structure of the narrative. How do we tell the overall story? When do story elements come in? But oftentimes the jobs overlap. And in my case, it they almost always overlap. I almost always end up doing both. But at bigger companies, at, 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 you know, really big studios, they're two separate, uh, they're two separate jobs. Yeah, and I believe you were the game writer for the game Murder in the Alps, the mo- the the mobile game. Yeah, that's so, right. The the most yeah. recent uh, the most recent chapter. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm I'm oh, I guess I'm under NDA. So this is something I may you may come up with me a lot. Is uh, I'm under NDA, so I can't talk too much. But there there's more. I have more Murder in the Alps content uh, coming. I can I think I can say that. Yes, yeah. I was the game writer on uh, that game. It's an award winning mobile game. It's like a murder mystery found a hidden object game. 
And it's really, it was fun as to work as a game writer on it. So basically they came to me, they come to me with very detailed outlines of what the story is, of what it should, how the scenes should feel. But it's my job to infuse life into the scenes, to give the, you know, make the characters feel like humans and to, you know, write the jokes and to write the most suspenseful lines and to sort of translate the vision of the narrative design team into a, you know, into a script that feels out of the period. It's from the 1930s. So I want it to feel like it's from that period. So some of the, using some of the language and uh, yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. That's, that's a really fun project to work on. Yeah, that sounds, that sounds awesome. So I know that you've done many different genres, like worked in many different genres. You've done comics, you've done audio fiction, tabletop games, cartoons. So uh, which of those are your favorite? How did you branch into all of them? Because that's something interesting. Yeah, I would say at this moment, you know, just games in general, it's hard to, to don't make me decide between uh, video games and tabletop games. I, I love them. I love them both. I would say right now, I, I would say games is my favorite. I, how did I get into all these? So here's the thing. I always knew, even when I was younger than you know, that I always wanted to be a writer. I wanted to be a writer since I literally started writing. Like I have, remember one early writing assignment, I think I was in third, second grade or third grade. And we were learning about the media, media literacy, like how the media works. And they asked us to write commercials. And I remember everybody did their assignment and they, you know, it's just like, here, I'm going to write a commercial like this. And I wrote like dozens of commercials. like. I just wouldn't stop writing them. I and the teachers loved it. They were very encouraging. They were, they were like, oh, "Keep going. I'll keep reading them." You know, be happy to 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 look at these. I really had a passion for writing from a very early age. Uh, so I've I've sort of bounced around between a lot of different disciplines in writing, part and parcel to the fact that when you live in Los Angeles, I always wanted to. I also knew from a very early age I wanted to live in Los Angeles. I grew up in Buffalo, New York. And uh, we're known for snow and I do not like <laughs> snow. Uh, it is my least favorite thing, my least favorite weather. I find it inconvenient. I find it <laughs> chilling. I just, I, I hate that feeling when you're out in the, the dead of winter and like you, your jacket isn't enough because there's quick yeah, sidebar. Absolutely. Do you understand? You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Where, I'm where from you, New where, Jersey, so oh, I know exactly you what you mean. I want to live in Florida, man. <laughs> yeah, I want to be up in the Keys. <laughs> I hear you. Is isn't it like when you have to go to when you have to go to school when it's snowing? Isn't that the worst? That's the worst, right? Absolutely. You wish yeah. you had a snow day though. <laughs> that's it's both that you want to have a snow day and you're walking in the cold. Both both of those are horrible, and you just mix them together, and you're not having a good day. I agree. It's a bad note to start on. I that was it always frustrated me. And Buffalo was was a particularly bad case. So we would run out of snow day uh, because you could only have the state. The state would only man. You could only have so many. But Buffalo, our winners kept going. They kept raging. So we would end up, you know, trudging. I remember trudging through snow that was literally past my legs, like basically up to my waist going to the bus stop that bit, like that bad and just having to like change clothes completely 
at school, just being like, even if you're wearing snow pants or whatever, it doesn't matter. Like you're still going to get wet. You're still going to be super cold. So yeah, I would just bring a whole other change of clothes. Yeah, it's really uh, crazy stuff. So anyway, I knew I wanted to live in LA. And that's what, what happens is when you live in LA is, do you, do you watch, uh, do you ever watch Price is Right? Like yes, at home yeah, from yeah. when you're sick and you watch Price uh-huh. is Right, right? Yep. Uh-huh. You know, Plinko? Yep. Being in Los Angeles as a creative person is kind of like Plinko. Like you understand you are putting the little puck at the top. And you intend for it to go into the, you know, into the most valuable slot, whatever the bonus. Right, right. But it kind of bounces around from thing to thing and you can't 100 percent control it. So uh, I ended up with a lot of uh, in a lot of different fields, uh, taking a lot of different opportunities. And I'm really glad I did because it's actually helped considerably with my game writing. Interesting. So um, speaking of your childhood and how you started out in Buffalo, I know from the age of 17, you were a parody songwriter. So how did you how did you transfer from that to uh, being a part of the gaming industry? Great, great question. When I was in high school, the Internet was becoming a real thing. It was becoming more or less like what you're experiencing today. Like I remember the very, very early days of the internet. I remember dialing into America Online and CompuServe into these like, yeah, I know. (laughs) Please laugh. You are free to laugh uh, at how ancient. I mean, have you ever like experienced a dial-up modem? Do you know what I mean when I say dial-up modem? Does that like- No, not at all. Great. Okay, so I'll just tell you real quick because it's still hilarious to me. So in the old days of internet, um, and I was like a computer nerd kid. I had like a subscription to Mac Addict magazine. Like I was like into computers. I loved computers. Okay, so the way you use, so, so one thing to understand is of course we didn't have like iPhones. We didn't have an ability to get on the internet portably. If you wanted to be online, that was a choice that you were making. Today, you're always online. You're right. constantly on. Your email is everywhere. Your Twitter is everywhere. It's all just you do it and you just pull it out. You just do it. But back in the day, you right. had to make a you had to make a concerted effort to be online. And one of the things you needed to have was a dial-up modem. So the internet went through phone lines, not through cable lines in the earliest days. So you would have a little box. That was next to your computer, and you'd plug it into your phone, and it would make noises like. Oh no, that would be so annoying. It was called handshaking. Basically, the two connections had to your computer and the computer's modem, and the server that you were dialing into had to decide how fast your connection could be. And it was a process called handshaking. And so, uh, so you log on to, let's say, America Online. And there you could play, you could play game, like you could download games. Now, it would take you all day long. But there were like shareware games that you could that you could download and stuff, right. uh, which was really cool. And I actually made some in the early, like in for with a program called HyperCard, which was kind of like... Imagine if the inter- imagine if the World Wide Web, imagine if the internet as we know it was all in black and white, 
and you had to download little pieces of it at a time. And it was, it was like very impractical. Like you had to download like almost like little books. Anyway, I made games using that, but those are probably some of the first video games that I made. But um, okay, so there was a website when I was in high school called mp3.com. And the way it worked was, this was at the time of Napster, which was basically like a file sharing service. It was like the early days of peer-to-peer file sharing. So like BitTorrent, but like the, the early iteration of that. And it was a revelation. I cannot tell you how big a deal it was, Napster was at the time. It was incredible. So it was all illegal. It was like super illegal, but everybody used it because nobody really like, I mean, we all kind of understand. Okay. Like perfect example. You know how jaywalking is illegal, right? Right, right? But like, if you're in New York city, right. People jaywalk all the time. Oh, like, yeah, especially if they're in big groups, right. They'll just like cross all together. Now it's not, you're not supposed to do it. But if a big group of people are doing it all at once, it's kind of difficult to enforce it as, you know, enforce the laws against it, right? Imagine that, but millions of people downloading music at the same time. So it was, so Napster was this incredible thing. And in fact, even today with Spotify and Apple Music, I still don't think that they even compare to the amount of music in just in terms of the breadth uh, that was on Napster. Noah, I cannot stress to you enough, literally anything you could imagine music-wise was on Napster. The most obscure, weirdest stuff, stuff that you didn't even know existed from artists that you loved. Wow, this is a very long uh, answer to your very simple question, but I've got, okay. I'm got—I'm feeling okay. a little nostalgic talking to you. But anyway, um, the, long story short, there was a website called mp3.com that was trying to be the legal version of Napster. Basically, what they wanted was to, was to bring unsigned artists to the masses through mp3. So you could download mp3s of these unsigned artists And mp3.com would pay the artist depending on how popular you were um, with the idea that the website would serve ad traffic to the people who were using it. So that was the business model. And I got in very early days at mp3.com as a comedy singer because I really loved comedy. I loved Weird Al Yankovic, uh, who was like a favorite of mine and, and others like him, like Stan Freeberg and stuff. And And it was something that was relatively easy to do. Video were still too big to put on the internet effectively, right? So YouTube was years away at this point. You you just, there wasn't just the space for it. It was hard, but music you could do. MP3s made it possible to share music and audio files. So, so yeah, so I would record them in my bedroom. We would use, I download these MIDI files, which were like very archaic, like, music backing tracks and basically would put them together. And I put them online and people really responded. I, I was interviewed on New Zealand radio. I was downloaded thousands and thousands upon thousands of times. Maybe I don't know. I don't know if I was downloaded millions, but I guess I couldn't tell you because there were no download records on Napster, but my stuff was, was very popular on Napster as well. And, uh, and yeah, it was really cool. It was sort of a very 
a very early version of what like being like a YouTuber, being like, you know, an influence, like a digital influencer or something like that. How I got into games was the question that you asked a million years ago. And, uh, and the answer is that, well, I didn't, I loved games. I really loved video games, but I always knew I wanted to be a writer. And I didn't really think there was a place for writers in video games. You know, I grew up in the NES era. How much writing is in those games? I mean, you know. Not even. Oh, my God. Yeah. How much I story mean, is there? It's it, they are, I mean, it's always like, save a princess, you know. It's yeah, like, yeah. Exa- yeah, exactly. Yeah. The, the, as I was understood, the game designers generally did any story related stuff. And I wanted to be a writer. But I ended up my first, uh, one of my first jobs in Los Angeles was as a writer for a cartoon studio. And they ended up branching out into games. And so I sort of got into game writing by happenstance. They asked if I wanted to write some of the stories and scripts for some of their Flash games. These are their early web games. And I was like, yeah, I would love to. It sounds sounds amazing. And uh, that's that's how it began. I, I didn't realize you could, I didn't fully realize you could be a writer independent of game design really until that point. And uh, yeah, I would, I would go on to have several uh, game jobs from there. Uh, now I focus on it full time. Yeah. And uh, I think it's interesting because you brought up a weird owl, obviously from your, from he, he also did parody songs, but um, he's, he's also branched out. He's done shows. If you ever heard of uh, Milo Murphy's law, yeah, that, that's a Disney show. And I know you've worked with Disney, but yeah, that's, that's very interesting. So what type of education do you think you need to to do this career? Mm, What a good question. I don't know kind of education. You know, people debate about this, about whether or not you need a formal education to be a writer or, or that for that matter, a narrative designer. I would argue it's a good idea. And here is, but every case is different. It's not like being a doctor, wherein like you need to go to medical school. Like there's just no way around that. You're not going to get hired at a hospital just being like, hey, like, can I be like, you know, can I <laughs> right, hang right. around and like do some little doctoring here and there that eventually maybe become a big, do- like, no, no, no. It's like you have to go to formal training. You know, with art, it is a challenge uh, in that sense. It's different. There's no formal path necessarily. Somebody could go to, you know, could learn the craft of writing from school, could take workshops. You know, another person may get hired just on the strength of their tweets. They're just really good at Twitter. And then maybe that may be an indie dev is like, you know, to dev team is like, yeah, that's good enough. I know in a lot of the job listings I see for narrative designers for for relatively major studios, a lot of them ask for a college education. So a lot of them ask for a BA. Usually they ask for a a bachelor's of arts in something like media, like visual arts or media arts or writing. But I think it's a good idea as a writer to read a lot. And it's advice that I think a lot of writers give. I have read a lot, Uh, reading a lot helps because you can see how other writers solve problems, solve narrative problems. And it also expands your worldview. So you you learn you learn to empathize with people who are different than you. And I think that that 
is maybe for me, my most valuable skills writer is, and whether you learn that in school by being a good friend and like reading about other types of people and their experiences or, you know, or however you learn it. I think being empathetic and learning that skill is the most important thing about being a writer, because in general, what you're going to do is you're going to write for characters. And in order to write a character well, you need to understand them. And I, I think you need to understand them on a fairly deep level. Absolutely. Even if what, uh, yeah, uh, you get it. Like, even if your goal is to make fun of that character, even if the goal is to, you know, that this character is silly or whatever, like, I think it really helps to be able to see the world from other people's perspectives. And then writing a lot too is really crucial. But, you know, do you need formal education to read and write a lot? You know, no, you could do it independently. You could be goodwill hunting and you could, you know, go to the library and do it yourself. But I, I think a great instructor can be really helpful. I know I'm grateful for, I've had some really great professors, especially in English and writing over the years who have been very helpful for me just in terms of guiding my path. So yeah, that's, that's what I would say. It depends. <laughs> yeah. And I know you're talking about reading and I've been reading a lot. You, there's this book, well, you probably know it's Chaos Walking. I mean, there's three books, it's a trilogy, but it's the first book has 478 pages and I just finished that. So I've been reading a lot. Are they uh, are they like YA books? Are they like in the vein of like a Harry Potter or, or they're like or dystopian? A, dystopian, no, like yeah. The, so like, like the, so like Hunger Games, kind of. Uh, yeah, kind of, kind of. Yeah. yeah, yeah, similar yeah. to that. So yeah, I mean that that was a great answer. So I was wondering. I think that a lot of times the actual writing of the characters gets sometimes overruled by the characters themselves and just like what they look like or how they act. But I want to ask how do you start to write a character or how would you start to write a character? Great. Another great question. These are great questions, by the way. Thank you, Noah. Yeah. How do you write a character? One of the things, so in game design, things are a little backwards. You, you think of like in games, the writing, generally speaking, doesn't come first. Usually what comes first is a thing called, we call a vertical slice. So usually it's a tiny team in a studio. They like a game designer, maybe an artist and a programmer, let's say. They get together and they make just a little fraction of what the game would be like. It's polished. It's relatively polished and looks good. It's like playable. And it's just, as, but it's a little fraction. It's just designed to give you a sense of what it is. So kind of like, think of like a cake, right? Like you take a slice of cake, the slice of cake isn't the whole cake, right. but it gives you a good sense of what it tastes like, what it looks like, you know, but it's not the whole thing. Right, right. So generally I'm brought in to a project right after the vertical slice is done. So they know the game is going to need story. So they present me with the slice of cake and they ask me from a story perspective, what does this entire cake look like? And, uh, and I'm like, well, to continue this fun metaphor, well, maybe it's got flowers on it. Maybe it says happy birthday, Lisa, you know I mean? Like the, uh, that's my job. So that, that's my job. So generally speaking, I'll be given some specifics about the character already. So I'll know what the character main character looks like. 
generally, so for example, I was working, I did a, worked on a role-playing game for um, several years. It came out recently called Fallen Legion Revenants. It's on right, Switch right. and PlayStation 4. Yep. Yep. And uh, I've done my research. You <laughs> I, have. Yes, I have. So. And you're incredibly well prepared, much more so than a lot of other podcasts I've been on. I, I get I got some of the questions in advance. I really appreciate your love. Right. You're on the Dirt Cheap podcast, right? That's right. Yes, that's right. Yeah. For uh, for Sony Music. I do that with my partner. It's a very fun thing. We read a really bad book and make fun of it as we're reading it. Um, which is uh, a, which is a lot of fun. So I do all the voices and stuff, which my dad did for me when I was growing up. He used to read me books. He would, would do the voices for me. So I like get to do it for like the I get to do it for for my partner and for the world. And then uh, yeah, and then uh, my partner Amanda and I make snarky comments. It's a lot of fun. Oh, so okay, so so designing a character. So they'll come to me. So so I'll already have. So in that game, Fallen Legion Revenants. There we go. I got back there. So in Fallen Legion Revenants. Their vertical slice had this character who was a ghost. They knew she was going to be a ghost because they wanted her to float in the air. So they see this core team had designed, had decided, oh, you know, it would be cool. What if she was a ghost? Okay, she's a ghost. Mm-hmm. Why is she a ghost? How did she die? What it, you know? Okay, we know her. She's going to overthrow a castle. We're going to be part of the overthrowing of a castle. Well, why? What happened to her in that castle, right? These are all questions that I, I'm answering. So generally, the first thing I do when I am designing a character is I think of adjectives. I think of three adjectives to describe the character. And, and then what I do, so let's say for in, in case of uh, Rowena, who is the, the lead character here, she is, what were the ones, I, adjectives I used to describe her? Well, I'll just make some up because nobody wants to watch. This is, this is listen to a podcast of me trying to remember adjectives. She is, you know, she's tough, right? She's, you know, she is caring and she is, let's say, sarcastic. Okay. Uh, that's not exactly right, but sure, I'll just, sure. just for the sake of time. So, okay. So, so then I'll go back and almost like an essay, like writing an essay in school, I'll go back into her background and I'll start fleshing, figure out, okay, she's tough. Why, how do we know she is tough? Well, when there was a prison riot, she took on, you know, she took on 50 people by herself and she managed to to calm the waters of the prison, you know? Okay. She's caring. Well, she loves her son, Edwin. And we know that, you know, that she's a very caring though, disciplinary, but, but very caring mother or say, okay, she's sarcastic. Yeah. Because she doesn't take any guff and she's, you know, has to deal with Lucian, who is her partner, who is a, who is foppish and, and witty. And she's like, I, I don't need any of this. So I'll basically like, think about the character as a person. And then like, what is she like now today? And then I'll go back and I'll use instances from her life to sort of fill in her background. And so that gives me sort of a clear sense of who she is and 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 also what she's about. Well, that was a, a great answer. So obviously when you're designing these characters and stuff, they have like definitely definitely different diverse backgrounds. But it did when you're writing them and the people are coming to you, they're asking to flesh out a story is when there's certain parts where they want two characters to meet, how would you do that? 
if in like maybe in certain storylines or would you do it from one character's perspective over the other? Would you? Mm. Yeah. Well, that depends. Well, that depends. Right. I mean, it depends on if one of our characters is like a lead and one of them is, you know, is a, is a background character or, or is supposed to be like a, you know, secondary character or if they're two leads, you know, a fall legion is, was what we, what they call in the movie business, a two hander. So you're supposed to see things from both of their perspectives. So you try to give both characters equal weight so because you, you, the player, play as both of them. So you have to empathize with both of them. I had an idea early on that I wanted them to be, confl- to be conflicting. So I sort of designed both of their characters to have opposite personalities so that when they're, they had scenes together, there'd be a lot of conflict. Conflict is something in drama classes you learn about is sort of the crucial element of scene work. You always want there to be, there's always going to be some kind of conflict. And conflict doesn't necessarily mean that they fight. You know, conflict may be, maybe they argue, you know, or maybe they, uh, maybe they get along super well, but they, there's, but you know, the conflict is something like, minor there's subtext there that we're not seeing but the the essence of of good drama is conflict you 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 a scene is engaging and so when when there's conflict and so yeah when there's two characters are in a scene the most important question that you can that you can ask i think and there's a great writer uh, Todd Alcott who uh, taught me this but is what does the protagonist want so what does the main character want? And uh, so in other words, okay, let's say our lead character is hungry, right? And, uh, oh, okay, he goes up as a kid and he goes up to his mom and he's like, mom, make me a sandwich, right? And the mom is like, first of all, very rude. Uh, so you didn't ask, please. And second of all, second of all, uh, you're a big kid. You could make your own sandwich. It's like, oh, but Bob, I'm so famished. I'm so hungry. But I don't have the energy to make this sandwich for myself. I really appreciate if you did it. It's like, well, you could see that I am very busy right now with my taxes. So you are going to have to you make the sandwich yourself. You're going to have to muster up the strength, right? That's a very simple conflict. But it shows you, but what's, what's, what I like about that scene, and I think what resonates with you is that it's a relatable conflict and we know what the protagonist wants, right? We understand the protagonist wants is hungry. They want to eat something. And that drive is going to push the scene forward. And the conflict is that the, the he's trying to get his, to cajole another person to do it and she doesn't want to do it for him. And so the two of them are going to go back and forth. And that's interesting. So, yeah, that's very interesting. So uh, I'm sure when you're driving a plot like that, you, you definitely want to have a lot of dialogue in like understanding between both of the characters. Like um, you want to make sure that they can converse and people understand what they're trying to tell, what kind of story they're trying to tell. Right. Yeah. Perfect. So I was just going to say, when, when it comes to that, I really do like uh, like stories uh, where you can really understand like the plot and how the characters how the characters work on like a personal and mental level. Yeah, me too. I think it's crucial. 
And uh, yesterday we were watching the the original Mortal Kombat movie and we were watching. Oh my God, the old one? Oh. Yeah, the old one. Yeah, I'd never seen it. And uh, I was actually surprised by how well they set up the, the characters and what they wanted. Because in a lot of movies like that, that are that are like known for being bad movies, they do that very poor. That's they do that very poorly. And so the movies I feel feel boring because I don't know what the characters want or why. And uh, Mortal Kombat surprisingly managed to get across who the main characters were and what they wanted. And I was like, oh, okay, I really appreciate I really appreciate that. Other aspects of it were hilariously terrible. The CG effects are really yes. dated. Oh yeah. They're very <laughs> funny. But like in terms of like uh, setting up the characters and the, their wants, I was like, "Yeah, that, this works." No, I, I told my I told my partner when we were watching it that I have no issues with this first act. Really, this is this is not a problem. Uh, I understand what's going on, and uh, the plot has been driven forward. There are pr- issues later in the movie, but uh, for that, but for the and the first act of a movie is generally where those things are established where those things right because if you if you've ever played mortal kombat the game like the, the actual newer games yeah. the dialogue they do in there is actually very very good it's very it's very well written yeah i think it, there's a lot of flavor to the dialogue i really i'm a bigger street fighter fan but oh, I, yeah, oh, yeah, totally. I i love the, the snappy dialogue in street fighter it's great, you know, to go home and be a family man. Guile says to Chun-Li, you know, irrespective of gender, misgendering, misgendering her. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, I love, I love a good, I love a, a dialogue, a bit of dialogue that really gives you a window into the character's soul. And I think that, uh, that fighting games tend to do that really, when a good fighting game tends to do that really well, because they, and also like, the goal is very, the character's motivation is very clear. They want to win this fight. And so oh, yeah, like, so you understand why they're saying what they're saying and why they're doing what they're doing. And so uh, it just, you know, all the lines are meant to like intimidate the your opponent or to school your opponent. And so like, yeah, it just tells you, oh, okay, this is how they would do it. This is how E Honda would do it versus this mm-hmm. is how Sub-Zero would do it. But they're basically doing the same thing, uh, which is cool. Yeah, that's awesome. So another thing about writing is uh, I heard that you've done branching dialogues in uh, certain certain games. So I, I want to know, how would you write those into a story? <laughs> Difficult. It's, uh, branching dialogue is a lot of fun. It's really cool. But it's a math problem as much as it is a story problem. In, in games with branching dialogue, well, are you asking on like a creative level? Or are you asking on like just a practical level? I'm asking it as if, if someone said, here, we want you to write a branching dialogue and we, we need one story to go this way and one story to go that way. And we need you to figure it out. Like, right. how would you do that? Right. So, so from a practical level, I might use a program called Twine, which has been useful in the past, basically to like do make maps of the story right to see like how the paths branch and like how what you do sends you to different paths being able to see it visually is really helpful because if it's entirely in your head you'll make mistakes um it's almost a guarantee but in terms of the craft of it 
You know, a lot of it is about, a lot of writing is about themes, right? And what branching dialogue allows you to do really well is explore themes in different ways, depending on on how the player wants to explore them. So, you know, in a typical linear story, a movie or TV show, the writer usually has something they're trying to get across. You think of a classic sitcom, right? It's like, okay, the they are at the kids are at the mall. Uh, Stephanie accidentally shoplifts, but she's like, well, you know what? The alarm didn't go off. What's the harm? Then throughout the episode, her conscience starts to eat away at her until yeah. uh, she's advised by her friendly uncle that she needs to go back and return the item that she stole. And she agrees. And she learns a valuable lesson, right? right about right. stealing, right? Branching dialogue doesn't let you do that at all. It blows that up completely. Because what if Stephanie, if what if an option is that Stephanie doesn't have to give back the sweater? Right. What if an option is that Stephanie could, uh, you know, if the idea that Stephanie goes on to sleep again, you could steal more stuff as Stephanie. Right. Or what if like Stephanie becomes so guilt ridden that she goes and joins a convent or whatever. But then she realizes that the convent light wasn't for her and she overcorrected. Right. So from a writing perspective, it makes it difficult to do themes. So what you have to do is you have to leave that leeway so for big for exploring big ideas, right? We have to say, okay, this game is going to be about stealing and the nature of stealing, but we're not going to be. It's it's hard to be didactic. It's hard to teach a lesson. Instead, we'll explore the idea of it. What does it mean, right? To to steal. Who is a to who does it affect? How does it affect you? Is it addictive? This is to say, as a writer with branching paths, you know, writers generally, we want to be, we want to explore themes. And so you have to explore them more broadly. You have to be, the story has to make sense from a thematic perspective, no matter which path you take. Uh, it's a challenge, but it's uh, I think it's a it's a fun challenge. I think it's a uh, it's a difficult it's it's a difficult challenge, but I think it's a fun one. And it's one that I uh, I really enjoy. Oh, yeah, totally. Because there was a few years ago, there was this Batman game from Telltale Games that was yep. very, very popular online. And I, I was watching it and I was always like, this is great. I mean, I, I wasn't going to get my parents by it. I don't know if they would or not. But uh, also, uh, have you ever heard of Minecraft story mode? Yes. That, yeah, that one yeah. had a big boom. Telltale is uh, famous for their branching paths stories. Though they were really, they, I mean, until they shut down, they were they were uh, they were the industry leaders in that space. Yeah, it's uh, is must be a fair big challenge for the narr- for the narrative teams to work on because those games they came out episodically, and so you had to not only it's not only just an encapsulated story, but it's also you know, okay, episode one, at the end of episode one, you have decided to do this, this, and this. So then the beginning of the next one, you know, yeah. the, other, the other challenge with branching path, the big challenge is making the choices feel like they matter to the player. Yeah, definitely. Cause there's those games that you have this choice, this choice, and this choice, but it's like, it's like, okay, kill the mayor. Don't kill the mayor. And it's like, don't kill the mayor. And they're like, Oh, but do you really want to do that? Do you really want to do that? And then it's like, kill the mayor. Don't kill the mayor. And, and you're like, 
kill don't kill a mayor and you're like ah! <laughs> and and then they and they finally just force you to kill a mayor because you don't have any choices of your own and you're like but i don't want to do that <laughs> right that's but yeah, right but yeah i mean the, but then i love the games that are like your choices actually matter at this point you've chosen to not kill the mayor he's staying around he's right. not going I agree. I think the choices have to matter. And I, I, when they don't, I find it very frustrating as a narrative designer. It's exactly the problem that you're talking about comes because the writer under, is, is writing a game that has branching paths, but also wants to write a linear story that right, goes right. in a certain direction because as a writer, that's what we're often trained to do. That's the classic form of writing and because thematically you're trying to say something with the work right and so in in this case the writer maybe felt that only by killing the mayor could we get to where the story needed to go from a storytelling perspective or perhaps from a production perspective there's a lot of factors that go into a decision like that um game design perspective you have to kill the mayor because you're going to get dropped some special loot or something you know the mayor's sash is going to be it's an important weapon that you can, you know, use to, to, to beat up bad guys. So it's it's a challenge, but I agree with you. It's much better when the stories feel, when if there is branching paths, you want it to be resonant. Or I'll take the other way too. If, they're, if they are like self-aware about it, I'm also fine with that. When it's like, yeah, yeah, we're, we're not giving, we're not really giving you a choice, but we're telling you we're not really giving you a choice. Like, yeah, or, yeah, or the yeah. choice is just, it's very aesthetic and it's just a very silly. Yeah. Color, yeah. Right? Cause I've okay. seen games that have like a really comical view on that kind of thing where it's like, there's some games that like put you in a loop sometimes, or some games that you have a choice between two doors, but the narrators, but, but in, in the narrators, like your character choose the left one, you go in the right door. And it's like, <laughs> and it's like, and then like they bring you back. Your character goes in the left door, like trying to force you, and then you go in the right door. <laughs> yeah, and they kind of like, like jokingly try to force you in there. I like that. I I, I like that. I, I'm a sucker for that. For those kinds of uh, that kind of meta humor. So I'm 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 totally down for that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. So I know that you've worked for um, Ubisoft, Disney, Lionsgate, all those kind of places. So how did you branch out into so many companies? Yeah. Um, again, it sort of goes back to the beginning of what we're, we're, our conversation we were just talking about. You know, in LA, you you really just don't know. You're, you know, sometimes you'll apply for something, you won't even know what the company is, and then it's like, oh, that's fine. Like I've worked for ad agencies, and oftentimes when you work at an ad agency, like you don't know what their clients are, what their clients are going to be. And then all of a sudden it's like, Oh, okay. I worked for, I worked for Hulu for a year because that became, that was a client that the ad agency had. So, so it's like, Oh, okay. I'm writing like the social copy for, for Hulu for a year. It's just, so there's a lot of like, it's kind of like surfing. You, you don't know what the waves are going to be like. You can train yourself to, you know, to how to surf, but, you know, the, the waves are where it take you to different uh, directions. So, you know, you just try to stay afloat. And sometimes you'll have an opportunity with, you know, maybe a friend, a colleague works, you know, somebody or somebody you worked with at a small company goes on to be hired by a big company. And then they remember you and then they hire, they, they hire you there. That's happened to me a couple of times. It's it really is just uh, it really depends. But, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's just a, it's a crazy thing. This L.A. life. This LA lifestyle. 
with our hamburger stands and our surfing and our Bermuda shorts, our top-down convertibles and our strange careers. It's uh, you never know what's gonna what's what's gonna happen. Yeah, that reminds me of the story because uh, if you've ever heard of the show The Flash, it's it's on its seventh season now. It's crazy, yep. but um. Is the actor for Wally West, who's Kid Flash? He didn't even know he was acting for it. He had a ton of blind auditions, and he and he just kept doing it. He he went all around the country, and then when they finally revealed that he was in the Flash, he, he honestly had no idea. So uh, that reminds you what you're talking about, like when you're doing ads or commercials or even like games or stuff like that for companies that you don't know and you don't know. That that seems like a very interesting concept, and then like I'm sure it feels like quite a surprise when you realize you're working for Hulu for a year when you didn't even know. Right. Yeah, it's true. It could be, it's, it's, it could be fun. It's like, Oh, okay. Yeah. I guess that's what my life is now. Like game studios are so like large game studios are the same way. They have lots of different projects going across divisions. So, you know, you may be as a writer, you may be hired to work on an FPS, but then you may end up in their mobile games department working on, uh, you know, a mobile game. And and maybe they have a license to Dragon Ball or something. So then, oh, oh, okay, well, I'm the high, I'm the high writer who works here. They got a license to an intellectual property. And I I guess I am the writer for that property. You know, there's a certain amount of, of, of give and take that you, you have, you can, you know, you can put yourself in the right position with your skill and your talent and your network. But then at the end of the day, luck is a major factor. And uh, yeah, you just, you just see where you end up. Yeah, absolutely. So we're winding down here. So I'll just ask you a few more questions. Sure. Where do you see the gaming just in general, the gaming industry headed? What kind of games do you think are coming up? What do you think is on the rise? What do you think is on the downfall? Whatever. Yeah, I think it's, I think you've you've got to bet on esports at this point. Um, oh yeah! Oh, absolutely. I uh, I think social games are clearly on the rise. Esports are clearly on the rise. I'm not sure about VR. I personally am not into VR because it makes me nauseous. The headset and everything gets makes me feel dizzy. I, I don't like not let me do VR. I wanted a VR for so long, but my eyes are going so no. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. The screen, the screens are like right up against your eyes. It, for for me, I, I physically speaking, I can't do it. There was an old system called uh, the Virtual Boy. It was like a Nintendo portable VR system from like the 90s, and it was terrible. It's like an infamously bad system. It was like red and black. It was like bright red. And it would make you, I get nauseous from like any VR, but this one would make everybody nauseous. Like in like 10 minutes of playing it, everybody got nauseous playing it. It's really funny uh, to see other people share that thing, that that quirk that I have. But I mean, people, people love it, but it's, I, I don't know, there seems to be a, a high barrier to entry with the VR helmet. But who knows, as costs come down, maybe that'll, maybe that will take off. I think that, but but personally speaking, if I'm betting on anything right now in terms of the future of gaming, I'm betting on mobile. I'm betting on oh, lightweight totally. mobile games because the market is clearly, even now, is not even as saturated as it could be. I know. So, uh I play Magic the Gathering, uh, as I've said to you. Yes. And literally, Magic... 
standard, specifically standard and historic, which are two of the formats, just moved to mobile in uh, MTG Arena, which used to be on the PC. And uh, it's been there's been a big boom. They have they've already put up commercials, uh, and it's only been like a month, but tons and tons of people have downloaded it. My teachers downloaded it. I've downloaded it. My friends downloaded it. But I'm very tempted to download Magic Arena. I just am like. I'm like on the, pre- I know it, it's going to eat up all of my time if I do it, but I, I, am, I, I, I would do, do it. I, I would do it. it. I would do it. I, I might, I might do it. I might do it. Just no, just you, do may it. Be con- you might be convincing me to, to get into digital magic. It's perfect for beginners. If you don't have to pour tons of money into it and it's just, it's just really fun and it yeah. gives you a lot of openness because and then if you ever wanted to move to IRL magic, you could do that because the, the format is super cheap. They put you in, they don't put you in like a format that would cost a lot of money. They throw you in like this cheap format. So if you wanted to move over to real life, which is obviously something they planned, it's like, if you wanted to move over to real life, it's not like you're like taking this giant leap. It's like, you're okay, well, this is just going to cost me that much. I actually, as I was saying a little bit earlier, I played magic a lot when I was your age. So I am, I'm, I wouldn't call myself a beginner. Now I've been out of the hobby for a long time. So there's a lot of magic specifics I don't know. But the basics of magic, I am very familiar with. So, yeah, I was saying earlier, you were saying you play uh, red, blue and black. And I was saying that red and blue would be a really good combination because you would have your your offense with with the cheap red cards and you would have good defense with the counter spells. I played a lot of uh, I played a goblin. I had a goblin deck growing up. So I played a lot of red. I played red. I also really enjoyed, uh, I had a, uh, an angels deck, which I really liked. I liked white because, uh, I like healing. I like healing myself and, uh, and I liked the angel cards, but they would always take a while to come out. So, so that was the, the, you'd use the, you'd use the, I'd use my healing spells defensively to just keep myself, just keep my hit totals up while I waited to get the creature, but get my, my angels, Sarah angel and all those cards out. But yeah, I would bet big on mobile because I still don't think the market is fully saturated and mobile makes tons more money than consoles do. You know, console, it's it's kind of like movies, seeing movies in film versus seeing movies on, on uh, like on, on streaming or whatever. Right. It's, yeah, totally. It's like because for the for the like- film critics or the film snobs. They want to go see the movie in the theater. They want that experience. But for most people, they're probably just going to oh, watch yeah, it on yeah, Disney definitely. Plus, you know. And I think mobile is kind of the same way. And, and cons is like for, yeah, for the people who are really big gamers. Yeah, they need a console. They want a PlayStation or an Xbox or Switch. But for most people, and most people are gamers. Like a lot of people are gamers now. A lot more than you would expect or you would even think of. I tell like my mom plays like Mahjong online. I tell her, you're a gamer. Like you may not self-identify, you may not self-identify as a gamer. Other gamers may not self-identify, but you're in the pool. Like you're in the yeah, pool yeah. You, you play video games. Yeah, not crazy foreign, but you've definitely, you've taken the step. <laughs> Absolutely. You're technically in there. <laughs> I think there's going to be, I think that we're going to see a, a even bigger growth of uh, mobile games. That would be my, that would be my big bet for the future. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, mobile games, mobile games are so practical because all you have to do is have your phone and you just tap a few buttons and you have it, and then it's just free to use for however else you want to use it. Right. So 
Is there anything you want people to know that I haven't asked? Maybe about your job, about uh, just generally games you play or, or stuff like that? That's a good question. Anything I want people to, to I want people to know. That See, the fact that you're questioning yourself about this means that I've done a good job in asking you the questions. That yeah, you're right. It's a, thought provo- it's a thought-provoking question. Because I'm also especially thinking of it in terms of when I was your age, like, what would I have wanted to, you know, what would I have wanted to know? Because this is a very, I mean, you, you, no, I don't know if, you, if you're aware of the podcast space. I'm not aware of the many other podcasters your age. So, like, this is kind of a special experience. I do a lot of podcast interviews. I do them all the time. But, like, this is a very special experience. Talking to somebody, not just your age, but also somebody who is, like, such a good, ho- like, such a good host um, with such great Thank questions. You. You're welcome. So, uh, so yeah, this, is, this has been a great experience. What, what would I want? So, I'm thinking about, like, specifically, like, what would I want? Here's, here's be my advice. Um, and it goes to some of the stuff we've been talking about today. Broad, I would say broaden your definition of success. You know, if you go in, it's it's fine to have a dream. It's fine to say, this is the thing I like aspire to, and this is the thing I, I want. And it's it's fine to do that. And it can be motivating, right? And, you know, from those dreams, you may develop a plan and you may succeed exactly the way that you planned. But part of life, is experimenting. And part of life is like is like trying new things and realizing that maybe the thing that you always thought you wanted to do, maybe the thing that you thought was like the perfect thing isn't 100% right. I got it. I I as a writer, I do a pretty good first draft. I I know there's a lot of writers who are like my first draft is garbage. I write it just to write it. It's my third draft is where it happens for me, but I just go really faster. I'm different. I, I, I write a pretty decent first draft, but I write it a lot slower, I think, than other writers do. I, I, I mean, I'm not like a slow, just like slow, slow, but I'm like, I've seen other people talk about like how many words they write in a day. And I'm like, oh, okay. That's, that's crazy. Yeah. I write, I, I'm not, I'm on the slower end there, but I write a, but when I finish my first draft, it's usually pretty solid. And I think in terms of figuring out what I wanted to do in life, I, I think I did a pretty decent first draft, but there were things about it that I didn't fully realize that about, about how I envisioned myself and my career and giving myself that leeway, that space to say, you know what, maybe things will be, maybe things will change in 20 years. Maybe things, you know, won't be the way they are right now. And allowing myself to say, you know what, my goal, you know, my goals in life maybe should change as well. And I'll say this as a capper to that, as sort of a sidebar to that. We often talk about, you know, what do we want to do when we grow up? Because like that, Matt, you've probably heard the maxim, if you love what you do, right, then you never work a day in your life, right? Or are you really working? Right. And, and I think there's truth to it. Uh, don't get me wrong. There's truth to it. But I think there's also something to be said for working with a great team, with working with people, the kind of people who you want to work with, surrounding yourself with great people. That may not be the case at the job that you thought you wanted. You may get to that level and you may realize, oh, the types of people I'm working with are jerks. The types of people I'm working with, I, I hate their... Or like, 
I don't like the hours of this job. I don't like that this job doesn't pay benefits, or I don't like it that this job doesn't afford me time off. And those things are important to me, you know, as well. And so understanding like quality of life is like as important, if not more important, I think, than what you actually do. I am convinced, 100% convinced that anybody could love their job, even if it's something that they really, like it's like work they don't like, if they were surrounded by great people, if they were treated well, and if if they were given good quality of, of life. Oh um, yeah, totally. I, I'm super, super happy that I'm doing it. Oftentimes people think, oh, you need to do a podcast because you want money or you need to see this person. Even if it takes time, you're going to see this YouTuber. But more, more so than less, I, I'm looking to do this podcast so I can meet people like you and so that I can just have a good time generally. You know? Yeah, absolutely. I, I've had a great time today, and I'm I'm glad you're doing I'm glad you're doing this podcast because I think people need to be reminded of gaming is really a very it's a it's the game a gamer is a very broad swath. In the when I was growing oh, up, when I was growing up, there was a very specific picture of what a gamer was, you know, and I'm sure you're familiar with the stereotype. Oh, um, yeah. And and I think it's great to have people who are younger, people who are older, people, you know, of just from all walks of life to show that like gaming is not just this little niche thing that only a certain people do. That my mom is a gamer, you're a gamer, we're all, you know, lots, so many of us are gamers. And uh, you know, that 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 means something very different today than it than it did uh back when I was growing up. So I'm very glad that you're, you're doing this podcast and uh, yeah, this has been, this has been a pleasure. Thank you, Jeffrey, for coming on the show. I'm glad you were able to discuss how the narration and story plotting is so important to the game. For all the gamers out there listening, make sure you follow Jeffrey on Twitter at Jeffrey Golden for his latest eBay discoveries. Thanks for listening to this episode of a gamer story podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please share it with a friend and subscribe rate, and review the show on your favorite podcast player. If you have any questions, comments, or feedback for me, you can reach me directly at thegamestory.com. Thanks for listening.